Hey everybody, this is Senior Pastor Joshua B. Carson saying thank you for tuning into the CT Podcast. We hope that your time here, whether you're driving down the road or whether you're sitting at home with a journal and listening in, we hope that it's effective. Maybe it'll be inspirational, encouraging. Maybe it'll be thought-provoking. Regardless of what session you're listening to, we truly pray that this is a benefit to you and to your family. God bless and enjoy the podcast. Thankful to be here and take a look at God's thoughts from God's book. You know, the Word of God has a way of changing us. But in some ways, it is not sufficient because we don't just have a relationship with God just through this book. This book tells us how to have a relationship with God. But we don't just have a relationship with this book. We have a relationship with the author of the book. Psalms 119 is the longest chapter of the Bible, and it is about the Word of God and the power of the Word of God. But at the end, the very last verse, verse 176, the psalmist says that I've gone astray like a lost sheep. Come after me, for I have not forgotten your commandments. So he remembered the commandments, but yet he still went astray, and he needed the Lord to intervene in his life. Remembering the commandments is not enough. We need the help of the Lord. We can know this book forward and backwards, and we still need the Lord's help because we fall short of achieving the perfection that we find in these pages. And that's why we come to church, and that's why you're here, because at every season of life, we need to hear the preaching of the Word of God. You're not here to hear me teach. You're here because there's God's thoughts in God's book, and as they go forth and begin to interact with that spirit that has filled your life, something beautiful begins to happen as God begins to speak to you. You know, the church is for the saving of the lost, yes, but it's also for the perfection of the saints. We need to come together, and it helps us to become better and live for him more fully. And you know, the beautiful thing about this is the more you live for God, the more he reveals to you, and the deeper that it gets in your life. And it's no longer just a stuffy book, it's life itself. Aren't you thankful for that? I give honor to. Yeah, that's all right. We can worship the Lord for his word and the power that we find in it. Amen. Amen. We're going to turn to Matthew chapter number 27, and we're going to be reading several verses of scripture and walking through a really a beautiful story. You know, my daughter um, is obsessed right now with the story of David and Goliath. She plays it all the time uh, where she's David in the story, and each of us take turns being Goliath. And... <laughs> She went up to my wife, you know, my wife is four foot 11. So she went up to my wife and she was standing really close to her. And, and my wife thought she was giving her a hug. She said, no, mommy, I'm seeing if you're tall enough to be Goliath. <laughs> she passed. She was allowed to be Goliath. I give my family honor, my wife and my in-laws are in town. Sage turns four tomorrow and I'm thankful that they're here to help us celebrate. I give them honor today. And of course, my parents, grandparents, and just so blessed. God has been good to me. God has been good to me. I'm thankful for our pastor. Aren't you thankful for him, Brother and Sister Carson, their family? Give them honor. Thank you for this opportunity, Brother and Sister Gallion and Brother and Sister Lopez, all the staff here at IBC and, and Calvary Tabernacle. I'm so blessed to work here. All right, let's look now. Oh, but I was saying about Sage and her favorite Bible story. She asked us now, what's our favorite Bible story? Because she has a favorite, so now she wants to know our favorites. And it's hard to choose a favorite. 
And when I think about it, you know, my favorite Bible story is the one that I read last. Because every time I read it, it's just, it's like, I can't believe I get to read this. I get to, I get to feel this, the power of it. And so I'm going to teach from my favorite Bible story today. Matthew chapter number 27, and we're going to begin reading at verse number 34. They gave him vinegar to drink mingled with gall, and when he had tasted thereof, he would not drink. Now, of course, we're talking about the story of the crucifixion here, and the subject today, my title is A Tale of Two Thieves, A Tale of Two Thieves. That's the continuation of our lesson series that we've been talking about. And of course, if you know anything about the story of the crucifixion, Jesus was crucified not alone, but he was crucified between two thieves. And I'm going to just, by way of introduction, just remind us that this is the greatest story to have ever happened in human history. So this is kind of a microcosm of the world. If you could just put kind of a seal on that mountain of Calvary, nothing else really matters. The dynasties in China fade away. The Roman Empire fades away. The pagan worship happening in Europe fades away. And it's just this, this moment, the greatest moment in human history. And there's so much instruction there that when we look at it, we can see what is happening there in that moment of incredible suffering. So verse 34 tells us that he was offered vinegar mingled with gall. Now, this was the one act of mercy that Jesus was given because that gall was a type of drug that would help stupefy you so that the excruciating pain would be dulled ever so small. And when he tasted and perceived that that's what it was, he refused it because he had a clear mind on his mission. But no doubt the thieves that we're going to talk about partook of that one small act of mercy. And so perhaps they were in a semi-drunken state as they're hanging there on the cross. And they crucified him, parting his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. And sitting down, they watched him there. And they set up over his head his accusation written, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, that was meant to be mockery, but it was true. He was the king. They thought they were mocking him. In fact, in the Gospel of John, it tells us that the Jews were angry that that was written. They told Pilate, we wanted to say that he said he was king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. And so that was a true statement. He was the king. And then there were two thieves crucified with him, one on the right hand and the other on the left. And they that passed by reviled him, wagging their heads and saying, thou that destroys the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself. Now, this is just a classic misunderstanding of what Jesus was talking about. He was not talking about the temple that they partnered with Rome to build. He was talking about his temple. He would destroy that temple because the temple is where God's spirit is. And so on earth, Jesus was the temple. 
of the Almighty God. He said, I will destroy this temple and I will raise it up again. I will raise up myself. They said, if thou be the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking him with the scribes and elders said, he saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he be the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. That's not true. That was a lie. They were lying. We know they were lying because these are the same men that watched him raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing that no man could do that. That had to be God to raise a man from the dead. And when they saw that, they determined, read it in John chapter 11, they determined in their heart to crucify him. When they saw that he was God, they decided he must die because he's not the Messiah we want. Now we can poke our, our finger at them and accuse them, and rightly so, but we also have to make sure that we look at our own heart because we can get a preconceived notion of who God is, and then when he reveals himself, we can reject him because he's not the God we want. And you see this all through our society today. And you, you know, if you don't get on board with the modern agenda, they say you're not even a very good Christian because they have built God in their own image. And I don't want to be too controversial, but you know, the, the TV series chosen, they, they decided to, to post an Instagram video with a gay pride flag on one of their cameras. And when people pointed it out, they came back and said, that's not very Christian of you. We love our crew members. We love all our crew members. They, have, they are creating a God in their own image. And when God reveals himself through his word, maybe through Romans chapter one, they reject that version of God because they've built their own version of God. So while we can look back at an ancient people and, and, and scowl at them, we also have to look at our heart and say, God, am I accepting you for who you are? We want God to accept us as who we are. But do we accept God for who he is? And so they rejected him. And you, also further evidence that this was not true is that when he died and the earth quaked and the veil rent and dead people rose up out of the grave and were seen among the city and darkness came over the earth, the centurion said, this, surely this must be the son of God. So he believed, but, but they didn't believe. They still didn't believe. And when he rose from the dead, they, they said, well, we'll pay you off. They told the soldiers, we'll pay you off to say that he didn't. So they knew that he rose from the dead. They still didn't believe. So this was not true. They were just having a cynical attitude and mocking him. You know, there's no amount of miracles that can convict an unrepentant heart. It takes a submission to God before you can see who he is. Even a miracle won't convince you. Then they, they mocking, they said, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will save him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, I think it's just telling that they're mocking Jesus because he trusted in God, which exposes their heart because they weren't trusting in God. They were trusting in their own ability. And this kind of reveals their heart. Verse 44, the thieves also which were crucified with him cast the same in his teeth. Now, this is an incredible irony that the thieves that are suffering the same fate as him would mock him because in doing so, they sided with the people that were crucifying them. Now, the Romans and the political power was killing, taking their life in excruciating ways. But they chose to side with those that were killing them to mock God. And it shows just the insanity that sin can put people in. That people that when they really get twisted by this world, they will 
side with the thing that's crucifying them and mock God in the process. Sin is ripping their life apart and yet they're choosing sin and mocking God. It just should give you a pity for people that don't know the Lord because it, it, it's not a blessed life that they live. It's a life that rips you apart. And so there they are siding with the people that are their accusers and that are their murderers in some sense and mocking the one that could save them, mocking the one that is in the process of saving them. How interesting is that? Now, that's where Matthew ends with his story of the two thieves, and it gives us a, a starting place, a detail. But as we have four Gospels, we can put those Gospels together, and they don't contradict, but they tell different details. And so as we read them in harmony, and, and overlay them one another, we get to see extra details that one gospel writer did not include. So this story, in some sense, is concluded in Luke chapter number 23. So if you want to turn there, we will look at the conclusion of the story in Luke chapter number 23 and kind of get to kind of the, the point of the message of, this, of the lesson. So Luke chapter number 23 and verse 34 then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, and we've heard this before, he saved others, let him save himself if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, if thou be the king of the Jews, save thyself. And the superscription also was written over him in the letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. And now we come back to the two thieves. And this is where we get into the tale of the two thieves. Because if you know anything about literature, this is a play off of the famous novel, A Tale of Two Cities. And the premise of that book is to compare and contrast two very different cities. So the purpose of this lesson is to compare and contrast two very different thieves. But until that moment in the story, in Matthew's story, they look very similar. But it's in Luke where we begin to see where they diverge and take two separate paths. And one of the malefactors which were hanged, and so Luke calls them malefactors or just a word for criminal. One of the criminals which were hanged railed on him saying, if thou be Christ, save thyself and us. Now, the Bible says that they, he railed on him. So this was a kind of a, I don't think you can do this. It was, it was mocking. But I also think there's a real ask in there. If, if he thought he was powerful, this is something he might ask. If thou be the Christ, which he didn't really believe that if, but if he did, then his, the next part would follow logically, save thyself and us, save us. Use your power, if you're really this superhuman, use this power to save us. I think that's a real request in some way. But I want you to look at it, what was he actually asking for? He was asking for salvation and it was not granted. Why? It's a question we have to ask ourselves. It's because the salvation, in my view, it's because the salvation he was asking for was one of material salvation. He wanted off the cross to go back to the life that he had been living. And that was a prayer that Jesus could not answer. Now, he, 
seems to keep his status as a victim. And I want to argue that these thieves were victims. Now, they might have been guilty of some sin, certainly, absolutely. They were guilty of some crime, no doubt. They had been convicted in a court of law. But with working with people, I know that people that live very alternative lifestyles often had alternative upbringings probably weren't raised in the best homes, didn't go to the best schools, probably didn't have the most finances available to them. But that, that's for us to just guess about. But even if they did have a good upbringing and they chose to go a wrong path, I don't believe any human being deserved to be crucified. If you really research and understand what it was, what it meant to be crucified, this was death on an extreme level. In fact, we read about the breaking of their legs that was really, and even though it's excruciating, that was really an act of mercy so that they would die faster because this took so long to die. You suffered for so long. So we can agree that on the base level, they were both victims of their society. Perhaps they had been abused. You know, that's how sin works. Victims become victimizers, which then, which then produce victims, which then be produce, insists the cycle of sin. That's the generational curse that the Bible talks about. It's real. And it doesn't even have to come from heaven or lightning striking. It just, you just breed sin into your family and it'll just run out of control. But you know, the good thing about that is when grace starts interacting with the family, grace can get out of control too. And grace can just roll through a life and roll through a family and bless children and bless homes and bless families. It just takes one person to put a stop to it and change the trajectory of their family. It's a beautiful thing, and that's what the church is about, and that's the hope of the church, and, and I'm so thankful for that in my life. God's been good to me. God, God, grace is out of control in my life. I look at the goodness of God, and I, there's just times I just can't help but worship the Lord because he has been so good to me. He has been so good to me. Well, we're going to come back to this, but... That goodness of the Lord also puts a request on my life because how foolish would I be if I walked away from the goodness of God? When that grace that has just gone out of control in my life, if I walk away from that, what's left for me? What excuse do I have? No excuse. No excuse. So you see these men as victims. I, and I do. I see them as victims. And they had every right to be angry and every right to be bitter and every right to be taken down off that cross and executed in a more humane way. And the, the way we know this is that Roman citizens were not executed in this way. They would not, they would not torture their own citizens this way. It's because they were sub, subjugated people. So it was, it, was a, it was a class system. They were not of the right class. This was reserved mostly for slaves because free men didn't deserve to die this way, so the thinking goes. So it was cruel and unusual punishment. A, a Roman citizen could commit the same crime and would not be forced to die like this. So they are victims in some sort. But in another way, they're very fortunate. Because like I said at the beginning, this is the greatest event to ever happen in human history. And they are there. Now, they're not just there witnessing it, but they are there next to the most powerful man they've ever met. Now, just think about it. When Jesus was teaching in Galilee, most likely these men were not there. They were committing their crimes. They were living their life. But Jesus found them at their moment of greatest need. Jesus has a way of finding everybody at their moment of greatest need. You know, God will have a church. He will reach the lost. The question is, do we want to be a part of what God is doing in this last day? And I know we do. And we are a part. 
But Jesus has a way of finding people at the moment of their greatest need. So think about it. In the moment when they're being victimized the most, Jesus is there beside them. Literally with one hand stretched to one and one hand stretched to the other. So yes, they're victims, but they're also the most fortunate men that have ever walked the face of the earth because in their moment of greatest need, the greatest Savior was there beside them. So the tale of two thieves, the first one was looking for a physical savior. He was looking for a stronger centurion that could come and kill the others and cut him down. But there was one stronger than a physical soldier next to him. But he wasn't looking for the right kind of salvation. But it is a tale of two thieves because the next one, although he had started out in his bitterness, mocking, laughing, casting things in Jesus's teeth, as the Bible says, Something begins to change in his heart. Maybe as he sees Jesus forgive. Maybe as he sees him take this suffering with dignity. I don't know what it is. Maybe he just sees the countenance on his face. But something begins to change. Verse 40. But the other answering rebuked him. Rebuked the other thief. Saying, dost not thou fear God? seeing thou art in the same condemnation. Now, this is kind of the point I was making. He's saying, hey, he's with us. We, we should be in this together. They're the enemy. You're mocking him, and he's suffering just like we are, this very cruel death. And then he says this, we indeed justly. Now, in my view, that's overstating the case. It's not just. But he recognizes his role in the mess that he's in. He sheds his victimhood. He sheds his victim status and he, in essence, repents. You cannot be a victim and a repenter at the same time. Because repentance releases you from that status of victimhood. You know, the beautiful thing about going down in the name of Jesus Christ in the waters of baptism is that it's for the remission of sin, not just your sin, but the sin that has been committed against you. Because sin is a very tangled web. Because what role do you play in sin? In some ways, everyone that's committed to sin is both a victim and a victimizer. And we have to have the help of the Lord to untangle that mess. To untangle that. And so he doesn't stay in his victimhood and say, well, I, if I wasn't a slave I, or if I wasn't a Jew, I wouldn't be crucified this way. If I was and this and that, and if I hadn't been raised like this, and if my dad hadn't abused me, then I wouldn't have done that. And if we'd had a little bit more money and could have got a little bit more of this and that, he doesn't go through that list. He just says, indeed, justly, I could have made different choices. I could have made different choices. And he, he repents in that moment. And then. He says, for we receive the due reward for our deeds. Once again, I think it's a little bit of an overstatement, but the, it shows the position of his heart. We receive this justly. We receive the reward of our deeds. We could have done differently. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me. Don't not get me off this cross. Send me back to let me continue my life of sin. Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. He recognized that Jesus's kingdom was not of this world and he wanted to be a part of it. That's a prayer that God answers 100% of the time. When you can get yourself to the place of repentance where you want to be aligned with the kingdom of God, not of this earth, but the kingdom of God. When you can shed the eyes of the flesh 
and stop just wanting material goods, although I do believe God blesses materially. I believe God heals bodies. I believe God provides. But that's not the main thing we do in the church. That's not the main thing Christ came to do. He didn't just come to heal our bodies and give us provision. He came to deal with the deeper issue of our heart. He came to save our soul. And so his cry, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. When your kingdom comes, I want to be a part because I understand that your kingdom is not of this world. I understand that though you're dying the death of a slave, you really are the king. I acknowledge that you are the king and that you will come in glory. And when you do, I just want you to remember me. He doesn't even ask to be there. He just says, I want you to remember me because this, the very thought of you and your power will touch my life. And there's nothing for me off this cross. You see, he, he had this idea of the future. Whereas the other thief was looking toward the past. I wish I could go back and relive the past before I was on this cross. That thief said, there's nothing for me back there. If I got down off this cross, what would this world have for me? If I got down and, and went back to my own home and my own life, there would be nothing for me. There would just be that victimization. There would just be that brokenness. There would just be that destruction. There would just be that temporary pleasure. There would just be that thing that does not last. But if I can get my eyes toward the future, that there is coming a kingdom, there's coming a kingdom of of God, that I can endure any hardship. I can endure any suffering. If you will just remember me when thou comest into my kingdom, you see the Lord is there at that greatest moments of suffering. So if you are find yourself in a great moment of suffering, I want you to pay attention because I guarantee you Jesus is in the midst, but he's in an unlikely place. That one thief was looking for a savior on the ground. He was looking for a savior of flesh. He was looking for a savior of his relations who come, who's powerful, who's got money that can buy me out of this and there was nobody found that could get him out of his mess. But if he could have just like that other thief turned his eye, not down, but up next to him on that hill, raised up above him, there was the savior of the world in an unlikely place. Jesus is in an unlikely place in the midst of your suffering. In the midst of your suffering, at every season of life, there are things that don't go well, that don't go according to plan. But when that happens, pay attention. Because I guarantee you, Jesus is there. I guarantee you, Jesus is there. And if you can see with the eyes of heaven, you can see his power. You can see his grace. You can see his touch. And verse 43, and Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Jesus gives him more than what he asked for because we don't know how to pray. That's the theme of scripture. We don't know how to pray. That's the beautiful thing about receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost with the evidence of speaking in other tongues is that when you pray in the spirit and God moves on you, the Bible teaches that that is prayer that you don't have the strength to pray. That is praying the perfect will of God over your life. And sometimes you and I don't have the strength to speak out what the perfect will of God is because it might be too difficult in the moment, but it will pay off in the end. So when we pray in the spirit, we allow God to make intercession for us. So he simply says, Lord, remember me. And Jesus does the rest. He says, I see your heart. I see your repentance and I'm going to do more for you than what you ask. I think back to Solomon and his prayer for wisdom. God did more than what Solomon asked for because he saw his heart. 
He said, give me wisdom to judge this people so great. And he said, if you had asked for wealth or fame or power or peace, I wouldn't have given it to you. But because you asked for this, I'll give you all of that as well. Because you don't know really what to pray. So you have to trust in the Lord. Give me what you think is good, God. That's how we pray. We pray for healing, but we ultimately pray, God, do what's best for me. I pray for provision, but I say, God, do what's best for me. Do what's best for me. Because there's some things that we walk through that, that in the moment are excruciating, but are the greatest opportunity of our life. Because that's where God reveals himself to us. These men, I, I guarantee you that they would not want to be crucified. But the one that made it to paradise, when we see him, do you think he'll say it was worth it? Do you think he'll say that that hours of agony was worth an eternity with him? His whole life maybe could have been agony, but it was just a blip in the space of eternity. That's why when we get to the other side, we'll say it's it's been worth it all. It's been it's been worth it all because in our greatest suffering, Jesus can reveal himself. And I'm coming to a close quickly. And the last thing I want to say is going to be a challenge. Because I'm challenged by this story. Because that first thief is rejected. Because he does not ask for the right thing. And he will be without excuse. Be without excuse. Because Jesus he got to see Jesus in the flesh. You and I have never got to see Jesus in the flesh. He got to see Jesus in the flesh. He will have no excuse on the day of Jesus. He won't be able to roll out his history. He won't be able to roll out all the victimization that he's stacked up. That will not be acknowledged because he got to see Jesus. Because he got to ask Jesus anything and he asked of the wrong thing. So this challenges me because the grace of God is a very harsh judge. Now, what I mean by that is if you reject the grace of God, what else will you have? God has been so good to me. If I reject this grace that God has just poured out on me, grace after grace and help me through so many things. If I reject that, what's left for me? What's left for me though? So let me, I hope it's nobody in this room, but just maybe you're here to give God one more chance. Let me urge you and say, do not reject the grace that God has given you. God, it's, it's God's grace that you're here today. Do not reject the grace that God has given you because you will be judged by that grace. If we're judged by the law, all of us fall short. But when we're judged by grace, we will be judged by those that accept the grace of God and those that reject the grace of God. That's how God divides the sheep from the goats. The sheep are not perfect, but they accepted the grace of God. And the goats are not completely evil, but they rejected the grace of God. This is where the cross is. Jesus said, I came to divide. I came to bring the sword. Yes, I came to bring grace, but my grace will be a very harsh judge when I come the second time. He came the first time lowly and riding upon 
on a donkey, but he will not be on a donkey the second time. He will come in power. He will come on a war horse. He will come with a sword. And it will be those that have rejected the grace of God that will find themselves without excuse because he will roll out the book and say, remember that moment of your greatest need? Guess what? I was there. Remember that? I sent your neighbor over to witness to you. Remember that? You made it to Calvary Tabernacle on that Sunday morning and I was there drawing you and I was there asking you, please repent of your sins. Please lay it down at an altar and I will touch and I will give grace to you. So my challenge to you this morning, accept the grace of God. Accept the grace of God. Forgiveness is here. It's here. It's all over this place. We're going to pray for the sick. We're going to sing. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to hear preaching of the word from our pastor. And we're going to have an altar call. The grace of God is all over this place. You can see it on the face of those sitting around. Anybody been a recipient of grace? Can anybody testify? The grace of God is all over this room. Please don't reject the grace of God. He came. He paid his blood for that grace. And he wants to give it to you today.